0: If you would, find Mark chapter 10. Some of you were thinking, we've been in Mark 10 forever, and that it's been a little while. When I originally laid out the way I thought the sermons were going to go, I thought we'd have about three weeks in Mark 10, and I think it's going to be five or six, but there's a lot here. I think there's a lot here. Hopefully, as we study it together, you will agree. To pick up a little bit where we were last week, we had the rich young ruler. If you have headings in your Bible, that's probably... How it's described the rich young ruler had come to Jesus he had come to the right person as someone said and asked the right question what did he ask what do I need to do so that I can eternal inherit eternal life and the answer he got of course from Jesus was the right answer but it wasn't what he expected because in the process Jesus told him you need to keep the commandments and of course he couldn't do that but he thought he could and then To point out the idolatry in this man's heart, Jesus said, sell all that you have, liquidate your assets, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And we read, he went away sorrowfully. He was grieved. He was sad as he left. Why? Because Jesus had pinpointed the idol of his heart. In his case, it was his money, his possessions. And he wasn't willing to turn from that to repent and to put his faith in Jesus and to follow him. Let's read, and once again this week, I want to read the context. So I'm going to begin in verse 13. I'd like to invite you to stand, please. I'm going to read Mark 10, 13, down to verse 31. Then they brought young children to Jesus that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around. And said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished beyond measure saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we know that your word is good, And it is good for us. So we ask this morning for the help of your Holy Spirit to give us open ears and soft hearts. That your word would do its work in us. That we would be willing to obey what you show us. Father, give your Holy Spirit free reign in this place, in our hearts today. I pray that he would empower me to speak your word clearly and accurately. Do what pleases you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you are familiar with the story of how my family and I got to Leland, North Carolina. but It was nine years ago, and the Lord laid on our hearts, to plant a church, eventually showed us that this was the area to come to, and we moved here with no job. The Lord allowed us to sell our house up there, so we had, if we were careful, we had enough money to live on for a year, but Rochelle had no income, and I had no income, and I can remember going over to the place where we signed our paperwork on our, our lease, We were living in Windsor Park, renting a house there for the first year. And I remember going, and the sales lady was there, and she was saying, you need to sign here and here and here. And we were talking about what what brought you to the area. We moved from Maryland. Okay. So I told her. And she stopped while I'm signing these papers. She said, it is really hard to find a job here. I said, yeah, that's what I've heard. I've applied here and here so far. No. You don't understand. It's really hard to find a job here. And what she was saying, as I interpret it, was, it's not just hard, it's almost impossible to find a job right now, nine years ago, in Leland. So these are the words of encouragement that she was offering me. <laughs> and it, it, indeed, it took until June, that was February, it took till June for me even to find a part-time job. It was a difficult work climate at that point. But I tell you that because that, that's kind of what I see going on in this passage, Because Jesus tells his disciples, this is hard. And then he doubles down because they aren't getting it. He's saying, no, you don't understand. When I say it's hard, it's actually impossible. So let me explain that a little further. I have three main points. The first two are related to what I just said. Number one, it is hard for someone who has riches to enter the kingdom of God. If you have riches, it's going to be hard to enter the kingdom of God. We'll talk about what that means because I realize that's counterintuitive. That doesn't really make sense at first reading. Second statement goes to the part that's impossible. It is impossible for someone who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of God. That's verses 24 to 27. And then we're going to cover that next paragraph along with this, because it fits in. It ties into what we studied last week. Peter asks the question, and what we're going to learn with that, the third point is following Christ is costly, but it is also rewarding. And that reward is both here and now and for eternity in the time to come. That's verses 28 to 31. So, go with me back, please, to verse 23. Actually, I'm going to start... We'll start at 23 in just a moment, but these last two paragraphs of Mark 10, because we've been taking basically a paragraph per week. We I read them just now about the children who were trying to come to Jesus and and then... Last week, the rich young ruler. And as we look at those, I believe we've seen opposite responses to Christ. Because in the case of the child, back in verse 15, we saw an empty-handed child. What do I mean by that? Those of you who are here, we've talked about this. The child does not have expectations. The child is not coming to Jesus saying, I was so good this week, you should bless me. The child is not coming to Jesus and saying, I have done so much for your kingdom, you have to let me in. Instead, probably the parents are bringing these children to Jesus and they don't have any expectation. Oh, he seems nice, sure. Or maybe some of them were afraid. I I suspect they were very comfortable around Jesus. But he blessed them. He had time for them. They were important to him. But they didn't have expectations and they didn't think that they'd earned their way there. And Jesus said... Unless all of you, talking to his disciples, unless everyone comes to me with childlike faith, you will not enter the kingdom of God. That was the first example, a child. But then last week, we saw the rich young ruler, and in verses 20 and 22, we saw his self-righteousness, his self-sufficiency, and I envision him as tight-fisted, Because he's going to hang on to his possessions, and he's not ready to give anything up. So what's the difference? We have childlike faith, open hands, ready to receive the blessing. With no expectations, no pretensions, no demands. Childlike faith. And then we have, no, I'm not going to give up my possessions. I've worked hard for this. And he thinks that by his good deeds, and by hanging on to his material possessions, he's going to force his way into the kingdom because he deserves it. It's a big contrast, isn't it? So that's where we pick it up today. This man has just walked away grieved, sad, sorrowful because he's not willing to give up his personal idol, in his case, money, in order to follow Christ. So this is our first point this morning. It is hard for someone who has riches to enter the kingdom of God. I'm in verse 23. Then Jesus looked around, and we've seen that statement in Mark multiple times. He's looking around. He's intently looking into people's eyes and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now hard, we're going to see by the time we get to verse 25, he means how impossible it is, but he's going to explain it. Because, as we saw last week, riches, being well off, having no discernible needs in my life, tends to make me self-sufficient. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I earned my way here. I'm good. I don't need help. I don't need your help. I don't need anybody's help. That attitude that often goes with material wealth becomes a hindrance. Now, please don't check out mentally for the rest of the sermon because I'm not rich. I don't have to worry about this, Bob. This doesn't apply to me. Well, let's understand. Part of the reason I had us read through Luke 12 for our scripture reading is to see that man who thought, I need to build bigger barns. I'm not going to care anything about God. I'm just going to, it's me, 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 me. We read about him. But Jesus said that one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Life is not about my stuff. And later he described that man as the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the issue isn't how much you have. It isn't how much you make. It isn't how much is in your bank account or your house or your car or any of your other possessions. What counts in this context is what is your attitude toward those things? Are you holding on to them tightly? No one is going to take these away from me. They're mine. I worked hard for them. Or are you rich toward God? Are you holding these things loosely knowing that everything I have comes from him and belongs to him and I'm just supposed to manage it for him? That's the first verse. That was the first point. The second one's a little longer. It is impossible for someone who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24 says, and the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When it says they were astonished, they were surprised. This was a shock to them. Why would it have been a shock to them? Well, in that culture, in that time, really, as you read the Old Testament, there were many of the rabbis of that day who had taken legitimate verses in the Old Testament and applied them in an illegitimate way to say, prosperity is directly from God. If you're doing right, you're going to be blessed. If you're doing wrong, you're going to be cursed. You're going to be poor. And that's not the way God operates. That's not God's economy. But even today, there are lots of people who say, okay, come to Jesus, pray to God try to live a good life and you're going to be blessed and your life's not going to be hard and you're going to have money and that's not the way it works. But even in that time period, they thought material blessing is showing that that person has been extra good and God is rewarding him or her. So when Jesus said, it's hard for people who are rich to enter the kingdom of God, they're shocked. This is the only time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels that Jesus calls the disciples children. And I believe what he's doing there is drawing attention to the fact that they're immature. They, they aren't thinking right about riches and people's response to riches. Because notice the change in wording. The second time he says it in verse 24, sorry, verse 25, children, how hard it is for those who, what's the next two words? trust in riches not just those who have riches what's the problem it's not having riches that's not necessarily bad the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil not the money itself so he's saying those who trust in riches they are depending on their wealth they are depending on their financial well-being for their security for their self-sufficiency they are self-reliant Someone said the person who has everything on earth can still lack what is most important. And what is that? Eternal life. Now we had this statement that seems kind of weird to us. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, this is the Jewish version of a Persian expression from that time. They used elephant. It's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. And either one is kind of ridiculous to us. You think of a big mammal, in this case a camel, going through a needle. Well, what is that? The camel was the largest land animal in Palestine. It's being written in the Jewish world, Jerusalem and surrounding area. That was their largest animal. And a needle was considered the smallest opening. So you're going to take the biggest animal and put it into the smallest opening. How's that going to go for you? Some of us have, would have. I don't know how much sewing you do. I don't, I don't but... I've tried to thread a needle before in my life, and it's hard. And it would be harder now with my eyesight as it is. And trying to get that through that little tiny hole. Now imagine that you're going to stuff a big old animal through that hole. How many of you think you can do that? Anybody? Any takers? I don't think you can do that. And that's Jesus' point. It is impossible for you to do that. You can't stuff a camel through the eye of a needle. You just can't do that. Some of you may be like me. You, you grew up in church or Sunday school or something, and you heard that there was this special gate, and you had to get all the luggage off the camel. I'm sorry, folks. That, that's a 15th century idea. That probably never happened. There has yet to be any proof of a gate. Because Jesus isn't saying, this is hard. Jesus is saying, this is not possible, humanly speaking. That's the point. Someone who trusts in riches is not going to get into heaven. Why? Not because he has riches, but because he's trusting in them instead of trusting in Christ. So Jesus is using this illustration to show that salvation by my works, salvation by human effort, is impossible. I will never do enough good. My attempts at righteousness, the Old Testament tells us, are filthy rags. It's garbage. I will never be able to do more good so that my good outweighs my bad. It is not possible for me to earn my way to heaven. And it's not possible for you either. That's the purpose of the camel and the needle. To say that you're not going to get there by your works. You're not going to get there by your good deeds. And you can have all the wealth in the world, but it's not going to do any good. We looked at this verse last week, but Mark 8, we covered this months ago. Mark eight thirty-six: For what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can be the wealthiest man alive. You can be a multi-billionaire. If you're not trusting in Christ, it's not going to matter in eternity how much money you had here. The disciples were even more surprised. Look at verse 26. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Again, they are of the mindset that material blessing is from God. You're a good person. You get all the riches of Abraham or Job or who Take your pick. That's the mindset. That's the context in which they're operating. So when they hear that, they're astounded. They're overwhelmed. And this is their question. Who then can be saved? And one of my commentaries said that the question isn't really so much a question as a protest. Because what they're really saying is, if a rich man can't be saved, then nobody can be saved. If that rich young ruler isn't going to get into heaven, there's no hope for any of us. Well, they're missing the point a little bit because they're focusing on the riches. The problem isn't the riches. The problem is trusting in the riches. Verse 27. But Jesus looked at them. He looked them. Looked each one probably in that. Looked around the group. Wanted to make sure that they were paying attention. Because he has a very bold statement here. With men, impossible. With men it is impossible. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Don't you love that promise? That's a wonderful promise. It's a promise, probably have it on greeting cards. Maybe you have it on a plaque or a card or something somewhere. Maybe you've memorized that. With God, all things are possible. It's a great promise from God's word. But let's understand and remember the context here. God can and do all his holy will. He's not limited. If it's part of his will... He can do it in the way he sees fit. He is not limited. Nothing is impossible for him, but specific to this passage, God can do what we absolutely cannot do for ourselves, and that is provide salvation. We can't save ourselves, but God can save us through the finished work of Christ. So when you read that wonderful promise, what with God? all things are possible, what's that really saying? It's saying that with God, I can have eternal life. With God, I can be saved. With God, I have a hope of a home in heaven with him. And it's not because of what I've done, and it's not because of what I have or don't have. It's because of him. That's what it means when it says, with God, all things are possible. What we're saying is that it's impossible for anyone to be saved by our own efforts. I liked what John Corson said. It is impossible for a rich man to be saved. It is impossible for a poor man to be saved because it is impossible for any person to be saved apart from the grace of God. What does that word grace mean? It means a gift. Salvation is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. It is the gift of God. It was costly to him. Jesus had to die. The wages of sin is death, but, finish it with me, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. It's not something I can earn. It's not something I can come up and demand. It's not something I can buy. But it is a gift that he offers freely to those who will come to him in faith the faith of a child. So, what did Jesus teach his disciples in response to the rejection of the rich young ruler? He walked away sorrowfully. He was bummed because he loved his stuff more than he loved God. What was Jesus teaching his disciples? that riches can be an obstacle that prevents people from coming to Christ. What would normally be an asset is now a liability because of our tendency towards self-reliance. But even though we can never come to Christ on our own, and even though material possessions can distract and hinder us from coming to him, he invites us because he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Christ. So that section ends and Peter speaks up. That's often the way it went. He had a question. He had a concern. He had an opinion he wished to share. And that's okay because probably the other disciples were wondering the same thing. It's just that he, with his personality, was going to get his word in there. He asked the question that the rest of the disciples were probably wondering because he was still stuck mentally. He was back a little ways in the, in the conversation. He was still stuck on what Jesus had asked the rich young ruler to do and what that man had refused to do. And as he chews on that, as he thinks that through, he realizes, hey, we did that. You see it in verse 28? Then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you, Now, we don't know the background of all the disciples, but there are several of them who indeed left their occupation, seems like a lucrative occupation, in order to follow Christ. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Peter and Andrew, for one. They had a fishing business. James and John seemed to have been well off. They were doing well in their fishing business. And then, of course, we have Matthew, or Levi, and he left the tax collection office, and probably he was doing very well. And they, can I say this, repented? They turned their back on their livelihood, their lucrative businesses. They turned their back on those things, perhaps not in a permanent way, the way he's making it out to be. But he had left, and he had followed. Isn't that what Jesus asked the young, rich young ruler to do? to leave his possessions behind and to follow. And they had done that. And to some extent, all of the disciples had done that. Whatever home they may have had to go back to, they were out on the road with Jesus most of the time. Whatever family they had left, they weren't getting to see as much as normal. So the disciples, the 12, had done what the Lord had asked the rich young ruler to do. And their question then is, would that qualify them for a place in the kingdom? Are they going to get in? Now, Matthew gives us a little bit more information. Because he's really after something. Do you see the abbreviation behind me? Or acronym, I guess it would be. What does that mean? Can anybody tell me what that means? You recognize that? Anybody from the business world, sales? The W is what's. What's in it for me? There we go. You do know this. What's in it for me? That's what Peter's asking. That's his question. What is in it for me? What is in it for us? We have left our stuff behind. We are following you. We are walking with you. So if you're saying that what the rich young ruler needs to do is to sell his stuff, give it to the poor, and follow you, and that's pretty close to what we've done, but he's not going to get eternal life because he's not willing to do that, then that means we're in. That's kind of what he's saying. And Matthew gives us a fuller account. Matthew says, after the question, as we have it here, he says, we have left all and followed you, and and the question that comes after that in Matthew is, what shall we have therefore? What's in it for us? And this is our third point this morning. Following Christ is costly, but it is rewarding. And it is rewarding both here and now, And in the future, we're at verse 29. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. Don't forget that phrase. Who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I'm going to tell you a little bit more of our story in getting here, and I'm actually going to back up. Because before we moved here, we thought we knew what the plan was. We thought we knew what the process was going to look like. And the Lord had laid on our hearts. We'd been praying for a year or two by that point. God, do you want us to go start a church? And if so, where? And the, the common wisdom, what Buddy at that time would have thought was okay probably you're going to go out as a team and go somewhere we thought would be going to the northeast or the west or something probably And in the process i sensed the lord was moving us and we thought that i was going to we as a family we're going to move back to greenville south carolina in fact i had a job there remember i told you we moved here without a job i had a job I just wasn't here so i went to check out that job i had the interview over the phone. I'd been accepted for the position. I'd worked there before when I was in graduate school. And I went to check it out. And my heart was not there. Because the idea was we're going to go back there. We're going to build a team. We're going to go out from there. Uh, there were ex- additional circumstances that made us think this is the time for us to go back to Greenville, South Carolina. That's where both our parents, both of our parents are. And at the time, Rochelle's mom had had a stroke. And we thought we, we might need to go back and help with that some so that, that made sense, but we got there, and it, it didn't make sense, and it didn't seem to be God's leading. And as we looked at the numbers as well, it looked like if I'm going to be there, I have to have two jobs. And if I'm going to have two jobs there, then I might as well come and have two jobs here. But while we were there, we, we had made a trip to go check out that job, and some friends counseled us up in Maryland well, why don't you just rule out because we had visited this area and I'd been thinking kind of in the back of my mind and praying about it for most of that year, about 10 months. And they said, well, why don't you go check out the job and then on the way back, just, just come back over toward Leland and Wilmington on the way home and just rule it out that that's not what God wants for you right now. So that's what we did. And we came and I was excited about being here and as excited about being here as I was not excited about being there. So in the weeks following that, I let them know that I wouldn't be coming to do that job. And they were very understanding, actually, because they had a heart for church planning also. And we came here. But some of what God used in that time, that one week period that we were praying and, and searching, do you ever have times where the same kind of passage of Scripture just keeps popping up different places? Somebody will quote it to you and then minute, you flick flipping through the radio station, that's the verse that comes on and you, you open your Bible reading and you've been in this plan for months and all of a sudden, oh, look, what, again, wow. And here's this sermon I'm listening to and he's, he's cross-referencing this section. We had a ton of that that week. And you know what verse it was? It was similar to this. It, this is from Matthew ten thirty-seven. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, I'm not here to preach that passage today. But the idea is that our love for God has to be greater than our love for family, even our closest family relationships. And that's pretty much what Jesus is saying. If you have left your family because of me, for my sake and the Gospels, then here's what's going to happen. So let's slice and dice this a minute. I have a table for you because I I like to see things visually. So this is verse 29 and verse 30. And I'm going to get a little bit grammar nerd on you for a second. Do you see the conjunctions, coordinating conjunctions, and, or, but, yet, nor, whatever? Okay, so we have or in verse 29. Did you notice how many ors there are in verse 29? Look at it. I don't care which translation you have with you. I'm pretty sure you have all ors in verse 29. And verse 30, you have ands. You say, so what, Bob? Well, I personally believe that Scripture is inspired that it is the word of God, that it is given by the Holy Spirit. And I believe the words of Scripture are inspired. So what does this mean if it's or in one list and and in the other list? It means that if I have given any of these up, because it's this or that or that or that or that, if I, not everyone's going to be called to give up all of those things. But you may be called to give up some of those things. And if you do, guess what? He has a promise for you, and it's and, 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 and. That's a pretty good deal, folks. You don't have to be excited about the grammar, but could you be excited about the promise here? Okay, i get some smiles now. What's it saying? Do you see the list? Verse 29 says house. Verse 30 says houses. I like that. Brothers is the same. Sisters is the same. Father is only in the first list of things that I might have to give up. Mothers in both, Wife. Now, some of your translations, I realize, don't have wife in verse 29. It is in the parallel in Luke, I believe, in just about any translation you would have with you. But that's not in verse 30 either. And then children, lands, oh look, persecutions, but eternal life. So, someone pointed out that these are general categories of home, relatives, and property. These are the things that we're going to have to give up, potentially. Potentially. May have to give out some of these things, probably not all of them. Why wouldn't father and wife be repeated in the second list? Well, other passages in the Gospels point out that we have a heavenly father. So in that sense, there's only one father that we would have. We may have to say goodbye to our earthly father for the sake of following God's will for us. And... If we go back a few weeks, we were talking about marriage and divorce. remember that? One man, one woman for life. So you're not going to get multiple wives. Because it says here, a hundredfold. You're not going to get a hundred wives. I asked Solomon, I don't think it would be a blessing if you did. But that's not part of the promise. And I believe that's why these two are, are missing. But look at the blessings that are here. A hundredfold. That's not just saying double. That's a hundred. That's, if I did that right, 10,000 times. 10,000%. 10, if I said that right. It's a big, big win. A return on investment, if you will. Whatever we may think we're giving up is going to be returned many times over. Now, yes, we moved away from Greenville, didn't end up moving back there, for myself, and I I don't mean to hold myself up. It's not that I've arrived and I've done all this, but truth is truth from God's word, whether or not I've experienced it. It's truth whether or not I believe it, but in this case, I believe it and I've experienced it, and I'm, I'm sharing it with you this morning. We moved away the first time from my birthplace, my hometown, South Carolina, Greenville, back in 2002. Our first child was born in 2000. So like some of you, we have never lived in the same town with any set of grandparents. But the Lord, this is just one small way I'm sharing with you, the Lord has provided adopted grandparents. And we have some, some of them have moved since we've lived in these places, but my, my kids have adopted grandparents in Georgia, Indiana, Maryland, North Carolina, and of course, my parents are still living in South Carolina. So that's just one small illustration of the way he blesses us in this time, in this life. You say, well, I don't feel very blessed. You probably need to think about it some more. Maybe ask a friend, how do you think the Lord has blessed me? Because sometimes we get so focused, we can be negative and we see, well, I have to give this up for God. Or or maybe you're thinking in terms of, well, if I obey what I think God wants me to do right now, I'm going to have to give up that and that's going to be lousy. I'm going to hate the rest of my life. We shouldn't do this just for the reward. We should be doing it out of love for God. But it's okay to be excited about the reward and to thank God for that too. And what this is saying is that if, if you have to give up any of these things, he's gonna reward you. Well what does that look like? I don't where are my houses, Bob? Well when we say brothers and sisters, I don't live close to either of my sisters and Rochelle doesn't live close geographically to either of her any of her three siblings right now. We're several hours from the closest ones. But we have brothers and sisters in this church body and the previous places we've served. And the family that we have in Christ, those relationships. And if we can extend it a little bit, if if you have me over for a meal, you are sharing your abundance with me. You are sharing your house with me. Are you going to put me on the deed? No, that wouldn't be appropriate. But but you're sharing with me, right? So it's not necessarily what we think of, and it's not always what we expect it's going to be. But this is a promise of the Lord. That if if we are following Christ, if we come with that childlike faith we've been talking about, and we receive salvation, we receive eternal life with Him, then whatever else we think we might be sacrificing is worth it because we have eternal life. But He's saying, I'm going to bless you now, and I'm going to bless you then. Come follow me. Don't worry about the possessions. Take up your cross and follow me. What about that last verse, all the firsts and lasts? Well, for anybody who'd been watching this play out, they would have thought that rich young ruler is first. If anybody's going to get into the kingdom, if anybody's going to go to heaven, he is. Not these disciples. This ragtag bunch, I don't know why Jesus picked them in the first place. The first will be last. And in this context, what that really means is that those who are wealthy, trusting in their riches, they're not going to make it into the kingdom at all. And those you would expect to be the last, the least likely to make it into the kingdom, if they are trusting with that simple childlike faith, they're in. And the same principle applies to the rewards that Christ is going to give. The person who's going to get the biggest rewards in heaven isn't necessarily the one who served God the longest or sacrificed the most. He's rewarding faithfulness. And the fact that he rewards us at all as unprofitable servants is amazing. But the first will be last, and the last first. Three simple ideas from today. It is hard for someone who has riches to enter the kingdom of God. But it is impossible for someone who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of God. For those willing to forsake the material in order to honor God, following Christ is costly, but it is rewarding, both now and eternally. You may be here this morning or watching or listening online And you may not have come to Christ yet. I would urge you, don't trust in riches. Don't trust in yourself. There's only one to trust in, and that's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We don't have anything of our own to offer, but you can come to Christ showing that childlike faith that we've been talking about. I have nothing to bring, I have nothing to offer, but I'm coming to him. And you can do that today. You can call on him, and he will save you. Now I know many of you, I know your testimony, I know you've done that. Is there anything in your life that's holding you back from following Jesus today? Right now? Is fear holding you back? Is stuff holding you back that you just don't know if you can give that up? Or that person, that relationship, I'm afraid that if I agree to do what I think God's calling me to do, I'm That boyfriend, that girlfriend, that. What's holding you back? Is there something that you're not yet willing to do? Because what this passage tells me is that there's nothing that I could give up that wouldn't be worth it. That's true of salvation and that's true of living for Christ, for following him. There's nothing, furthermore, that you can give up that won't be rewarded in this life and in the life to come. Now, there is that one word in the verse. And, and, and. Persecutions. With persecutions. There's going to be trials. There's going to be hardships. The book of John records that in this world you will have hardships. You will have persecutions. But be of good cheer. Be of comforted, because I have overcome the world. So it's not that, please don't walk out of here thinking, oh, Bob said that if I agree to do what God wants me to do, that life is going to be hunky-dory the rest of my life. I'm not going to have any trials, and that's not the way it works. But the reward will be so worth it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? As we close the service, I'm about to pray. And it may be that there's someone here that the Holy Spirit's been working in your heart this morning in a way that's very specific. You know what he's asking of you. Is there anyone, child or adult in the room, who would say, Bob, I have not put my faith in Jesus. I've never come like a child to him. Would you pray for me? If that describes you, would you simply slip your hand up and back down? Is there a Christian here who would say, Bob, I'm wrestling with something. I think God's asking me to do something, and I don't know. I'm fearful. I don't know if it's worth it. Would you pray for me? Same thing. Simply slip your hand up, put it back down. I'd be glad to pray for you without embarrassing you. Our Father, please do your good work in our hearts. Help us to relinquish our hold on the things that would distract us or prevent us from doing your will here. Certainly giving up things that would keep us from coming to you for salvation. Lord, you know what the spiritual needs are here. You know how you're working and we trust you to do your work in us. Give us a greater love for you a greater love for others. Jesus name Amen